0: This is Bite Sized Blessings. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to episode six. This is Bite Sized Blessings, the podcast designed to anchor your weak and strengthen your Christian walk. Um, this is episode six. We are going to be finishing up our, I guess, three-part mini-series on Job, on uh, the life of Job. And I just want to say I have heard from several of you regarding last week's podcast. I am grateful and thankful that it touched you and it was helpful. Um, this is like that's why I do this. And so, you know, if, if you ever find something that is that is especially beneficial, you know, shout me out. I'm on Twitter. Uh, shout me out. I check. I check my stuff, and I, I really appreciate, it. and it's very encouraging for me. So thank you for the people that that I heard from. Um, so today uh, we're looking at the story of Job again. Uh, this is our last part on Job, and and we're going to focus a little bit on the uh, ancillary characters around Job, and not so much on Job himself. So. Our text for today is going to be Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. We're going to read several texts, but I guess this is where we'll start. So Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, I am reading from the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, and this is what Job 2, 11 through 13 says. Now when Job's three friends heard all of these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, they met together to go console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. These friends show up to Job's house, right? And once they start talking and conversing, right? We know because we, you know, part one and part two, we understand that they show up to Job's house and they start talking and what they say turns out to be not very helpful to Job and, and really stresses Job out. And... That's interesting, but I think before we excoriate them for how they attempted to comfort Job, I do want to appreciate and acknowledge the attempt they made. Job is a book of complex characters. Nobody in this story is perfect. What these friends did and how they said it um, was kind of awful, but what they tried to do is beautiful. Right. Like verse 13, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Nobody spoke a word for they saw that his suffering was very great. I appreciate that they let Job lead the conversation of his tragedy. I appreciate that they were willing to go and be present without seeking to take over how this was going to be discussed. Right. Because I think I think a lot of times Christianity in particular is a religion of speaking. It's a religion of offering. It's a religion of teaching. It's a religion of, hey, I have something that you need and uh, you listen while I talk and I will explain this thing that I have that you need. And I appreciate that Job's friend's initial posture was one of listening, right? And, and I don't want to underestimate the effect that their physical presence had with Job, right? The Job is now a sick man um, struck down um, by God. It could be very easy to turn their backs on him as someone who they don't want to run with anymore because they don't want to catch what he has they don't want to be guilty by association with him but no they they show up in they don't write a letter and say how are you doing you know they don't they don't they don't send a message through a courier they show up in person they drop what they're doing to go to job's house and just sit in silence for seven days I, I, you know, it, it, this doesn't turn out well, (laughs) it doesn't turn out well, but what they tried to do, I really appreciate what they tried to do, um, especially because if you're a close reader, you will, you will learn that Job has a family, right? It's not just Job and his wife, Job has brothers and sisters, right? I'm looking at a Job 42 verses 10 and 11, Job 42 verses 10 and 11, Right? And this is what this says Job 42, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before. And they ate bread in his house, and they showed sympathy, and they comforted him for the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Where were y'all at, brothers and sisters? They only show up at the end when times are good. You know, and that's, that's family, right? These are the people who are supposed to have Job's back no matter what. They are completely absent from this narrative only up until the point when Job is restored to his um, material position do we even discover that he has family beyond the wife and the friends. That's crazy. And that shows a possible set of actions that his friends could have taken. They could have left Job and just showed up again at the end, but they didn't. They were willing to sit with him through the pain, through the silence, through the torture, through the agony. And right, like I said, it doesn't it doesn't go it doesn't go well. But I appreciate that they made the attempt, especially in the face of the absence of his brothers and sisters. And 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 I don't want to we love family. I love my family. I love, I love my family. Aunties, uncles, sister, mom, dad, all my peoples, I love y'all to death. Um, but I want to acknowledge the friends that I have that have made themselves family by their presence in my life through tough situations, right? Because to me, that's what family is. Family is presence through thick and thin. Family is presence through the worst of it. And that's what these friends showed up for Job. That's how they showed up for Job, physically present through the worst of it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't turn out well, right? The friends we, we, we've discussed before, the friends and have a karmic theology. If you are doing good, then the Lord will bless you. If you are doing bad, then the Lord will strike you down. Job, you have been struck down, ergo... You have been doing badly. The friend's whole mission is to conform Job to that theology. Job is crying out, I am innocent. I have done nothing. I don't deserve this. And the friends, how they see being, they perceive being a good friend as putting Job back into the theology that they grew up knowing, right? They perceive being a good friend as adjusting Job and allowing him to see the correctness of their theology. And Job is saying, this theology is broken. And they're saying, how dare you say that? You must be a sinner, look at what's happening to you. And sort of like, uh, I believe on episode one, when we talked about um, the wilderness of Shur, um, Job thought he was gonna get comfort from his friends, and it turns out, not so much, right? So Job chapter six, uh, verses 15 through 20, Job six, verses 15 through 20, he's talking about, um, the support of his friends. And this is, this is, I mean, it's really sad, but it's a really beautiful metaphor. This is what Job says, Job six fifteen through 20. My companions are treacherous, like a torrent bed, like freshets that pass away, that run dark with ice, turbid with melting snow. In time of heat, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. That caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tema look, the travelers of Sheba hope. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confounded. Whew. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come and are confounded. That's setting yourself up to be an emotional place of safety and turning out to be a place of danger right? Job thought, and the friends had good intentions. They thought they would be that place of safety for Job, and Job tried to rely on them, and it turns out that he is like a caravan that followed a mirage deeper into the desert looking for water. Have mercy. So Job is fooled into thinking his friends would provide real support, and they don't. But let's look at another character in the life of Job in the story. Let's, let's take a minute and examine Job's wife, There's a famous, famous passage with Job's wife, um, and that is in Job chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is really the only explicit appearance she makes in the text, Job 2, verses 9 and 10. This is just after, you know, they lost their children, they lost their property, they lost their house, they lost everything. This is the conversation that Job and his wife have. Then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. I have sympathy for Job's wife. I understand where she's coming from. I know it leads to this really iconic line, you know, do we shall we not get the good from God and not also the bad? I, I understand. Um, but I think Job's wife is in some ways the bravest person in this story, right? Because she is articulating the thing that Job comes so close to doing, he just walks the line of it, right? Job's wife perceives and understands job's relationship with god to be transactional right just like the friends you put in good works you put in good behavior you put in good worship and outcomes good blessings right and you put in bad worship you put in bad behavior you put in bad works outcomes being struck down job's wife is perceiving that this is how job's relationship with god is it's transactional in nature job gives this in return god gives this Um, And she also perceives, um, from her perspective, that Job has been keeping up his end of the bargain, but God has not, right? She thinks that Job has been putting in all the good stuff and has been handed in return um, all this undeserved and unearned tragedy. And I think think what she's saying is, Job, you are like an employee in an employer-employee relationship, and your employer is treating you wrong, abusing you, doing you dirty. Leave this job. Get out of here. Why are you still here? And I know it's really easy because, you know, we're Christians and we have the utmost respect for God to be like, oh, no, don't, you know, what are you doing, Job's wife? You can't (laughs) curse God. What you mean? Um, But understand from the context of what they're living in, right, she's saying you've been holding up your end of the bargain, but God has not So leave this, get up out of here. Do something to improve your life and stop worrying and trying to stress about this God who don't do nothing for you anyway. You were doing all this good stuff and look where you are. So it's not good for you, leave. Um, Job doesn't end up doing any of that. In fact, he rebukes her pretty strongly, right? You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? But I don't don't know if Job, (laughs) Job doesn't, fully believe what he's saying, right? See, this is how you got to be a close reader of this stuff, right? Be a close reader, be critical. Um, Job says, shall we not receive the good without the bad? And he's saying, you speak as any foolish woman. But if you read what he says in response and with his friends, Job is not that far away from what his wife is asking him to do, right? So look, just look at how Job opens his monologues in uh, Job chapter three, right? So, uh, You can just pick random verses and get the point. Job chapter 3, I'm looking at verses 2, right? Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Um, Verse 7, Let the night be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Um, verse nine, let the stars of its dawn be dark, um, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Um, why, uh, verse 16, why was I not buried like a stillborn child, like an infant that never sees the light? Um, verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why were there knees to receive me or breasts for me to suck? Like Job isn't going to curse God. But what does he do? He curses himself. He curses the day he was born. He curses his mama. He curses the midwife who helped his mama give birth. Like Job is is doing, it's like an everything but, right? Job feels the exact same way his wife feels, but just won't go and say the thing, like the end point that his wife is trying to make. Job is not that far, Job is not that far away from what his wife is saying. Um, his wife is just saying, The whole thing and Job is saying like the first 80% of it is just gonna leave that 20% like but we know like Job we we can see where you're going we see what the point is talking about um shall we not accept good with the bad he spends 40 chapters arguing with his friends about why he should not be getting the good with the bad like he's not nearly as self-aware as he thinks he is because he is doing in long form what his wife said in two verses um and, and the other thing I want to say about his wife uh, is I, I want us to be very intentional. Like Job chapter two, that conversation with Job and his wife, that's the only time that we see his wife speak in, in the book of Job. Um, but I don't want to take her silence in the rest of the book to be absence, right? She is still there. Don't interpret her silence as her not being present with him anymore. Um, and we know that because at the end, he has more children, right? So she's there at the beginning and she's there at the end. Um, she's probably there in the middle as well. And I know there's like a temptation to be like, oh man, it's just Job and his friends and it's all the guys talking and his wife wasn't really there. She wasn't caring for him. No, 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 don't, don't interpret all that. You're, you're reaching with the text now um odds are she was probably right there tending to his boils feeding him clothing him making sure he was good hanging out doing all of this stuff all the wifely duties she's there at the beginning of the chapter of the book she's there at the end don't take her silence in the middle for absence um so here is the uh funny thing uh we're almost done Um, if you, and you miss it, if you skip all, I know a lot of us just like to focus on the beginning of Job and the end of Job because it's interesting, but there's a lot of really good deep stuff happening in the middle. Uh, and part of what might be happening in the middle of Job is we learn that Job may actually be full of crap. He may not be nearly as good as he thinks he is. This whole, his whole argument is based on, I am innocent. I don't deserve this. Well, are you Job? are you? Uh, let's go to Job 22. Job 22. And uh, this is uh, Eliphaz, Job's one of Job's friends, accusing Job of doing some pretty shameful stuff, right? So I'm Job 22, and I'm reading, uh, starting at verse 5, reading 5 through 9, Job 22, 5 through 9. This is what Eliphaz says, talking to Job. Is not your wickedness great? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges from your family for no reason, stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The powerful possess the land and the favored live in it. You have sent widows away empty-handed in the arms of the orphans. You have crushed. Oh, (laughs) Interesting. Job, what do you have to say to that, Mr. I am innocent? I don't deserve any of this. Uh, My life is pure. This is all one big mistake. Eliphaz says, uh, bro, you crush the poor. You oppress them. You are stingy with your family and exact pledges for no reason. Job doesn't really have a specific response to anything Eliphaz says here. Um, Just more claims of general innocence. Um, But then something else happens later in Job chapter 30. um, I'm looking at Job 30 verses 1 through 4. um, We get Job's own words about why his situation is so awful. Job 30 verses 1 through 4 and he's talking about why his situation is awful. But now they make sport of me. They are the people who were beneath him. The people, Job 29 is him talking about the people who were once beneath him. Job 30, now he's talking about the people who were beneath him. This is what he says. But now they make sport of me. Those who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? All their vigor is gone. Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry and desolate ground. They pick the mallow and the leaves of bushes to warm themselves, the roots of broom. They are driven out from society. People shout after them as a thief. Um, Verse 9, and now they mock me in song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. (laughs) <laughs> this dude joe Job's a funny guy um he has a very serious pride problem a very serious pride problem uh eliphaz says listen you don't treat people nearly as well as you think you do and that's just hit eliphaz's accusation you know we don't have any evidence one way or the other but then we do have in verse 30 you know Job, his mask slips a little bit and he starts talking down on all the people who now have something to say. You know, I would, your fathers, I would have disdained to set with my daughter. That's some serious language there, Sir Job. Um, and this is not to say he deserved any of what God did to him or allowed Satan to do to him. But it is to say that Job's whole defense is one based on, I am a good person. I am innocent. Right? Because karmic theology. Eliphaz and Job's own words somewhat show that, listen, Job, by this karmic theology, perhaps, um, perhaps you have earned some type of divine retribution if that karmic theology is still going to hold. You are not nearly as good as you think you are. Uh, I don't believe that Job is as good as he perceives himself to be. I think he lacks self-awareness. I think he rebukes his wife for for saying out loud the thing that he's thinking. I think he's really prideful. But all of this is really, really easy to miss if we just skim through the book, right? Um, but the one of the most beautiful parts of Job, and we're going to end with this, um, and this is, I love, this is, such a, a, this is such a small detail, but I love how Job ends, right? So Job ends, Job 42, 12 through 15. So he has had his whole conversation with God. He's been restored. He gets some stuff back. Him and his wife have some more children. Listen to how the story ends. Job 42, verses 12 through 15. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than His beginning. He had fourteen thousand sheep, six thousand camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hephak. In all the land there was there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. Woo! The Father gave the daughters job gave his daughters inheritance along with the brothers that is he in a world of patriarchy in a world of men rule and women just have to sort of serve at their feet Job elevates his daughters to equal status with his sons and we get the names of his daughters. We don't get the names of his sons. That's so powerful. Look at how Job has started to treat people more equitably. This whole scenario has gone down and now Job is treating people better than how he did before. And here's even more. This is so easy to miss. But if you read chapter one carefully of Job, you will see that he has slaves and servants. He has them. He talks about them in the the conversations with his friends. In chapter one, there's a list. And among the list of, you know, oxen and cattle and sheep and goats and da-da-da, you also have slaves. We don't have any more slaves for Job. The list is sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys, sons and daughters. No more servants. No more slaves. Something about this experience has made Job realize that he does not treat people as they should be treated. He doesn't have any more servants or slaves, and he has now decided he is going to treat his daughters with the power that he treats his sons. And I think that's such a powerful takeaway to come away from the story of Job. This is a man who thought he was innocent. He thought he was good. He thought he had to improve. His whole thing is, Lord, I don't deserve this. We we understand and we read the accusation of Eliphaz. We see Job's lack of self-awareness. We see how he speaks down on the people who are beneath him. But then after his conversation with God, he is all of a sudden treating people so much better. We leave Job as Job becomes a better person. Yes, he is restored, but his character has also been improved. This is is still a story of tragedy, and we can still say that he did not deserve what happened to him, but he comes out of his situation as a person more fair, more loving, more likely to treat people equally. So here are some discussion questions. First one. Have you ever gone through a life-defining moment and found that it affected you in a way that you didn't anticipate at all, right? Life-defining moment, but its effect on you was completely unanticipated. Second, how present are you for your friends when they go through a soul-crushing experience? Are you too quick to speak? Do you, like Job's family, struggle with showing up at all? How do you manage and go through those situations? Okay, that's Job. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you uh, for the Sabbath. Thank you for the chance to just read the story of Job and dive deep into Job's wife and his friends. Um, Lord, I just want to pray for all those who are listening to the podcast um, Lord, I pray that we are able to better show up for our people when they go through things that we can learn from Job's friends, both the good and how they were present and how they were silent and how they let Job lead and the bad and how they blame Job for Job's situation. Lord, I pray that we are able to, um, learn more about you and your relationship with humanity through the Bible. Thank you so much. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Okay. That is episode six. Of bite sized blessings, you can follow me on Twitter um, at Chuck Rock, C H U K. Um, ROXX. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Bite Size Blessed. We are on YouTube. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're on uh, Spotify podcast, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, TuneIn Radio. You know, we're all over the place. Um, tell a friend. Um, if something specifically touched you, feel free to reach out to me. You can find me, find me most active on Twitter. I always appreciate hearing from people. Um, that's all. Have a good week. This has been episode six of Bite Sized Blessings.